Now, I want to encourage you to take your copy of the scriptures this morning and turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Perhaps you're familiar with the Hans Christian Andersen story of the emperor's new clothes. It is a a wonderful story, isn't it? And it has a, a great lesson for us. You remember the story, the, this emperor who was so inclined to wear these great clothings, these outfits, and he made such a big deal about it. And when two conmen came into town, they had a brilliant idea. They would go to the emperor and tell him that we make this kind of clothing that is just the most beautiful. It's made out of this very rare cloth, and, and we would like to make it to you, but it's so special that only the wise and the smart and the brilliant among us are actually able to see it. And the king thought, or this emperor, thinking, well, surely if anyone should have it, it should be me. So he hired these people to do this. Now, of course, it was nothing but a con. And they had this loom, and, uh, and they would be pretending to, uh, to make this cloth. And the king would send representatives to go down. And they didn't see him working on anything, just these looms. But, but they knew that, that that would mean that they're not the smartest and the wisest and the brightest among them. So they went back to the king and said, oh, it's, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. King, you're, re are you really going to love this? Well, the, finally the time came, and they disrobed the emperor, and they pretended to put on all of these clothes, stepping back to, oh, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And the king, standing before a glass mirror, couldn't see anything either, but he was ashamed to say so, lest someone would think he wasn't the best and the brightest. And so he behold, he went out in front of all of the peoples, and they were all stunned. Oh, you and I know why. He was naked. <laughs> but people didn't say anything. I mean, they didn't want to be thought of as boorish, as common, until one little boy looked out, pointed at the emperor, and said, The emperor's got no clothes! To which brought everyone to the point of realization. And the king, great humiliation. It's a great lesson, my friends. We get the same kind of pressures to buy into something we know isn't true, but we hold on to it anyway because everyone else well, friends, <laughs> I remind us of this story because as we come to Romans chapter 3, you will note in your Bible as well as mine that chapter 3 comes directly after chapter 2. Go ahead, check it. It does. And uh, what we found in chapter 2 is that Paul had specifically addressed the Jews and talked about their sin and how they too, like the Gentiles of chapter 1, we're guilty before God of great sin. And there we stand naked. We have nothing for which to cover ourselves. Now when we come to chapter 3, 
Paul does something called um, a diatribe. Now, what this is, is he presents some questions, and then he answers them. And these are all questions that perhaps the Jews might ask in, in light of their history, in light of the promises of God. I mean, surely you don't mean us. And what we're going to look at is, is perhaps one of the most difficult passages in all of the Bible. It seems odd that it's here. It's cumbersome. It's, it's unusual. But here we go, diving in anyway. It's likely the passage that Peter was talking about when he talked about Paul's writing that some were hard to understand, like the rest of scriptures. But, uh, but we're going to dive in and take a look anyway here. And what we're going to see are a series of questions that Paul presents that perhaps might be uh, questions the Jews might have. And what he does in, in this, this process is highlight some very important truths. So take a look with me, if you will, at question number one found in verse one. Notice he says, then what advantage has the Jew? I mean, if we're just as guilty as the rest of the world, well, that doesn't make us very special, does it? I mean, the word of God has referred to us as the apple of God's eye. How can we just be as terrible as the Gentiles? So if the Jews and Gentiles are both guilty before God, then what advantage is there in being a Jew? Does their sin disqualify them from being the apple of God's eye? You see, they had this belief. They were circumcised. Now, circumcision was a huge deal for the Jews. It happened on the eighth day, and it was the sign that they had entered into the covenant with God. It was no small thing. There was no other nation on earth that had this covenant with God. That God had not only talked about their present, but their future as well. And they kind of got to thinking... We're untouchable. In a sense, it doesn't matter what, what we do. Everything is good for us. We're the people of God. Very, very, very dangerous thought there, my friend. Very dangerous. And so here they lie, naked. Nothing for which to cover themselves. They are guilty just like the rest of the world. And if you don't mind me saying, just like us. Hmm. Well, Paul's answer, you will notice here in verse 2, starts with this expression, much in every way. And so what Paul is saying, yeah, you are indeed special, much in many, um, <laughs> much in every way. And so it seems that we're about to get a list of things that make the Jews special. And we will get a list when we get to Romans chapter 9 and verse 4 and 5. But what Paul says here is to begin with, again, sign of a list. The Jews were entrusted with the word of God. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God sent them prophets. God sent them Moses. God sent them all of these great men of God whom he used to record the word of God 
which he would preserve for us even here today. They had the word of God. Now the list would continue in Romans 9, 4. They're Israelites, and to them belong the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And so yes, the Jews remain special. And they always will be. God still has promises that he made that are yet to be fulfilled. But their question is this, did we blow it? Do we lose our position with God because of this sin? And Paul's answer is no. You're still unique in God's sight. Now Paul's next question is focused on God. First question, what about us? Next question is focused on God and questions whether the unfaithfulness of the Jews, get this, indicates that God himself may have been unfaithful. You see, we've entered the absurd now, haven't we? Wondering whether or not God has been unfaithful. It is contrary to the very nature of God to be unfaithful. But notice verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? (laughs) And I'll tell you, as the list goes, they become more and more absurd. Will God forsake his promises to bless the nation because some of the Israelites proved unfaithful? Well, the fact of the matter is, throughout history, the nation of Israel, that indeed did happen for some people. For example, when they came to the edge of the promised land, they sent in spies to spy it out. And they came back and said, it's everything God said it would be, except we can't do it. Well, in their own power, they could not. But God had promised to bring them in. And because of their unbelief and all of the congregation said, let's just go back to Egypt. Astounding. The Lord told them, none of this generation will go into the land. Your children, in 40 years, they will go in. But all of this generation that refused me will not get the promised land. happened previous to that having come out of Egypt the Lord summoned uh, Moses to come up to the mountain to speak with him there he gave him the law and while he was up there the people looked around and said you know this Moses fellow he's been gone for a while and they started looking at Aaron and saying what are you going to do about it Aaron getting scared decides to come up with a plan. Everybody take off your gold earring. You know, the stuff you got from Egypt. And he made an idol, a golden calf. And Aaron looked at it and said, this is your God. This is the God who brought you out of Egypt, and this is the God who will lead you now. People died that day. People died that day. 
Be sure your sin will find you out, my friends. There's no hiding places from God, and there are always consequences of sin. But does your sin make God unfaithful? I'm not certain how that convoluted question even made it under the pages of Scripture, but there it is. And what it does is gives Paul the opportunity to highlight the faithfulness of God. See, when we come to verse 4, we find these three words, by no means. And what that is, is a translation of a Greek expression, meganoito. And this is the kind of phrase that means it is indignant negative. Absolutely not. How could you even say such a thing? Melanie and I were married, I don't know, a couple of weeks. And um, I'm not certain what exactly happened. And, and uh, I said, well, why don't we put it in there? And she turned around and said, do you wish you wouldn't have married me? <laughs> I said, what are you, crazy? I was just, and, and that's kind of... Of course not. It's a ridiculous statement to make that God would be unfaithful. And there is Paul. It is an indignant negative. It's a recoil of abhorrence. Of course not. Don't be ridiculous. God unfaithful? Ridiculous. And so he continues in verse 4. Let God be true though everyone were a liar. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. And here we see that uh, Paul is quoting Psalm 51. This uh, verse 4 here, part uh, that you may be justified. It's quoted from Psalm 51. And friends, you're good students of the Bible. So I want to remind you that Psalm 51 records David's confession to God of his sin. I'll tell you, this story terrifies me. David and Bathsheba. Here is David the king. He is righteous. He is godly. He is a man after God's own heart. God even said so. But he sees a woman. And he goes and he sleeps with this woman. A woman who belongs to another man. And then he finds that she is pregnant. And he tries to cover up his sin. Guess what, friends? It never works. You cannot cover up your sin. So David brought her husband home, hoping that he would sleep with her while the rest of the warriors were at battle. This man came home, and he refused to sleep with his wife, saying, think about how righteous this is. All of my friends are out there in the battle, sleeping out in the open land. And what? I'm going to find comfort for myself. It is just a slap in the face of David. Well, then he, he comes up with another plan. Send him to the front of the lines. And when he is there, pull back the troops. I'm going to kill this guy is what he did. He had a man murdered. Are you counting the number of sins involved with all of this? You see, if you don't go right to confession, my friends, the sin just builds. 
And so now the man is dead. And God sends his prophet Nathan to him. And don't miss this one, friends, I have. And Nathan tells a story about a man who had this little lamb, and he loved it. And he cared for it and protected it. But this wealthy man came along and took it and cut it open and killed it. David, enraged as you are in hearing that, said, that man shall die. And in that very moment, we recognize David's hypocrisy. Because as Nathan points out, you're the man. That is exactly what you did. And you want to talk about this guy's sin? Let's talk about yours. And there were repercussions from David's sin. The son that was born from Bathsheba died. David became a target. Everything changes. Everything lost when you sin. In Psalm 51, David confesses his sin and asks for God to clean him up. Make me. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now listen to me, friends. You have the Holy Spirit from the moment you put your faith in Christ. You're indwelt with the Spirit of God. And God will never take away the Spirit. But he did to the, the previous king, Saul, because of his son. And here's David knowing all of the things that could happen in his life. And why is he being quoted here? Because David acknowledges that God not only has the right to bless David, he has the right to judge David as well. And so God is indeed faithful, not only to bless the nation of Israel, but to judge them as well, to punish them for their sin. So while Israel has been unfaithful, and it is documented well in the Old Testament over and over again, God remains faithful. How do we see it? Well, Jesus one of the promises that God made that through the nation of Israel, the Messiah would come. And he has. God is faithful. So now building on to the question of whether God is faithful, they move on to whether his God is even just to judge them. Now this is astounding here, friends. It seems that this is made up and somebody put this in my preaching calendar and it surely isn't in the Bible, but take a look. Take a look. The next question is this. Since God's righteousness shines in the context of their sin, shouldn't God deal more graciously with them? I mean, God is looking good when we're sinning, right? I mean, think of God's grace, God's righteousness on display because of our sin. And here's how this argument goes. Look at verse 5. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? And Paul says here, I... I speak in a human way. This is an apology for even writing that sentence. Nonsense. You see, because what they're saying 
is, do you see how God's righteousness is really shining when we're sinning? You know, I mean, just the contrast here. It's like the darker it is, the brighter the lights. Well, we're really doing God a favor in our sin. Here's Paul. How could he even manufacture such a thought? And you know what word we see? There it is. By no means. Here is Paul's response. Meganito. But then how could God even judge the world if that was the case? Think about how ridiculous that is. Well, you can't judge us because we're making you look good. The worse we look, the better you look. What a ridiculous statement. And Paul says no. So the logical result is, is if that's true, then God couldn't even judge anyone, right? God couldn't judge any sinners. It's ridiculous. And ultimately, this kind of thinking leads to this kind of living. Look at verse 7. But if, if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why, do not, uh, and why not do evil that good may come? Here it is. Go ahead, sin all you want, because then God's mercy comes in, and man, does it shine. And so we're doing God a favor by all that sin. You think that's ridiculous? I'll tell you what, my friends, it is. A notable historical instance of a person who actually reasoned this out was a Russian monk named Gregory Rasputin. He was the evil genius of the Ramanov family in the last years of that family's power. And Rasputin actually taught and, uh, and exemplified this very doctrine that Paul says is just evil. That salvation comes through repeated experiences of sin. This is what this guy taught. Salvation comes when you just keep sinning and repent. And, and he, he held that since those who sin the most require the most forgiveness... A sinner who continues to sin with abandon enjoys each time he repents more of God's forgiving grace than just an ordinary sinner. My friends, this is the doctrine of demons. Keep sinning that God's grace might abound. There is no excuse. There is no place to run or to hide, my friends. The whole world stands guilty before God. And that's where we end up. Here in verse 9 through 20. The whole world stands guilty before God. Our first section in the book of Romans, chapters 1 to 3. Chapter 1, all of the Gentiles stand guilty before God of their sin. Chapter 2, the Jews stand guilty before God's sin. And the summation, the whole world stands guilty before God. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? I suppose we can include that as a question. And Paul's response, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, and you may want to get out your calculator to count how many times we use the word all here. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. And why are they under sin? Hmm. Why are they guilty before God? Because all have sinned 
And because all are depraved, which means corrupt, no exception, no exceptions. Look at verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous. How many? None. None is righteous. No, not one. Verse 11, no one understands. No one seeks for God. And why? Because they have depraved character, verse 12. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. They are depraved in their character. They are depraved in their conversation. Their throat is an open grave, and they use their tongue to deceive. And the venom of asps is under their lips. And their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. And they are depraved in their conduct. Look at verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Because all are depraved. When you come into this world, you have a fallen nature. You think only of yourself. And the timing of your needs is always now. It always belongs to you. Mine. Gimme, gimme, gimme. No, not you. And one of the major roles of a parent is to help a child recognize this and learn to say no to themselves. We teach manners. Someone else goes first. Mm. No, you first. No, you have this one. Learning to say no. Learning to recognize our sinful, selfish impulses. And there is no hope. There is nothing we can do to get rid of it. It can't hold your breath and plug your nose and count to ten. It won't go away, my friends, not in and of ourselves. And so, friends, all have sinned. All are depraved. And as a result, the whole world is accountable to God. Look at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable, held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight. No matter how many laws you follow, rules you create, it won't be enough, my friend. It won't be enough. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. My friends, all have sinned and await the righteous judgment of God. Thus is the conclusion of the first section of the book of Romans. All have sinned. No exceptions, my friend. There is no one in this room who, well, I never did. I've never been to Florida either, you know. I mean, there's just no exceptions. There are no excuses that will satisfy the righteousness of God. 
Nothing. Well, I didn't know. Yes, you did. Chapter 1. You can't argue your way out of God's judgment. There is no clever argument. There is nothing you can say. Well, maybe if I tell jokes. Well, you know, I did go to church that one time. I was even a member. I was baptized even. Friends, they ain't going to do it. It is faith in Christ and Christ alone. Anything else is an insult to the work of Christ. To say, well, I was... I trusted Jesus plus that is an insult to the work of Christ who died once for all. And finally, you can own your only hope. Hear me this. Hear me say this. The only hope that you have is that you cry out to God for mercy and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Well, this concludes the first section of Romans 1 through 3 that focuses on the sin and guilt of mankind before God. And next week, we make a transition. And that transition will be to the book of Romans and look at God's provision for sinners. It is our hope. Father in heaven, God, here is your word. We have spoke it. We have read it. We have seen it with our eyes. And perhaps now we understand that we stand guilty before you. And without Christ, we have no hope. Father, anyone that is listening to this, I pray, Father, that does not know you, that you draw them to yourself. That you call them to yourself. That they cry out to you in seeking your mercy and your grace. Because God, you never turn anyone away. Give us the faith, God, to believe. And knowing how severe this is, God, give us the obedience to go and tell. And share this truth with others. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.